Once again, we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning and looking at the first four verses of this amazing chapter in Scripture that centers on the resurrection of the dead made possible in Jesus Christ. Everything we believe has implications. For example, if you believe that electricity can shock you, can electrify you, then likely you would probably not stick a knife into an electrical receptacle, right? If you believe that a ladder will hold you, then you'll probably be more comfortable climbing that ladder. If you believe the brakes of your vehicle are in poor repair and maybe won't work, then most likely you're not going to drive that vehicle right away, right? We act on our beliefs all the time. Again, our beliefs always have implications. But if instead uh, such a person believed that the brakes on their vehicle don't work and yet they still think, but it's okay, I'll still drive it, it's probably going to put them in a precarious situation, right? We might even say those two beliefs are a little bit contradictory. If If someone believes that a ladder may not hold them when they climb it, but they say, I must still climb it, again, dangerous ground. If you believe electricity will shock you, but you think you can handle it, and you stick the knife in the, in the outlet, you're going to be in a precarious situation, aren't you? Now, what about when it comes to the truth of God's Word? Can I believe the Bible is God's Word and still believe that I don't need to listen to it or follow it or find guidance for my life in it? we would say those are contradictory beliefs, and it would put us, again, in a spiritually precarious situation. Our passage today is dealing with such contradictory beliefs. As Paul is changing gears now in 1 Corinthians and addressing a whole new issue, an issue of resurrection from the dead. See, the Corinthians believed that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's the gospel they said they believed, which is about to be repeated in our passage. But at the same time, some of the the Corinthians were teaching something contradictory to that. They were questioning the very doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. And Paul is going to be saying to them, at least at the beginning of this chapter, how can you believe in this if you don't believe in that? It's contradictory. It doesn't make any sense. And it's putting them in a precarious, spiritually speaking, situation. So what Paul is doing here is he's actually in the first four verses, which we're going to just focus on this morning, he is reminding the the Corinthians of what they've already believed to show that this doctrine that's creeping into their church is contradictory to that and thus should be abandoned, that they shouldn't hold on to this new belief that some are spreading, that there's no resurrection from the dead. And as we walk through these first four verses, 
And Paul is beginning this grand defense of just the doctrine of resurrection from the dead. This is a long chapter. What is it? 50-some verses. He's going to just give the most detailed view of resurrection in all of Scripture. And he's starting with, in these first, say, 11 verses or so, uh, and I guess even beyond that, of really focusing on, first of all, Jesus rose from the dead. Because that is central, that is foundational to all other resurrection that the Bible talks about. That's what he's talking about now in this chapter. We're going to look at two major points. First of all, that Christ's resurrection is foundational to salvation. And also, Christ's resurrection was predicted in the Scriptures. Paul makes these two points to show the Corinthians that this doctrine is just completely central and vital to the very Christian life. You need it for salvation. The Scriptures predicted it. And I'll just kind of say this. What he's doing here when he starts to lay this out is he's going to present an argument. And right away what he's going to say is, if, if there's no resurrection, Jesus didn't raise, you're not saved, number one. The second point is, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus did not raise, and the Scriptures are wrong. So those are the two things that they're trading in. If that's showing, showing that they, their beliefs are contradictory. If what you're teaching now is true then you're not saved and the Bible's wrong. So maybe rethink it. (laughs) That's what he's saying. Maybe rethink it. Okay, that's basically the logical argument of these first four verses. So let's read these four verses once again, where Paul, again, changing gears, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you are, excuse me, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Again, in these first two verses, we're going to be seeing how Christ's resurrection is foundational to salvation. And again, Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the gospel which they had already believed and put their faith in. And it included Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And again, he is proving that resurrection, therefore, must be a true doctrine. Or the Corinthians would not be saved. The very gospel that they were teaching would be for nothing. As we explore these first two verses and think about how Jesus' resurrection is foundational to salvation... What I'm going to do from this passage and kind of inferring from the rest of the chapter is walk you through the three phases or tenses of salvation to show how all of them crumble if, there's, if Jesus did not raise from the dead and if there's no resurrection from the dead. Again, verse 1, he says, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand. And the first point we want to make here is that the good news of Christ saves us from the penalty of sin. This is a, an idea that the Bible presents to us that the moment a person trusts in Jesus' death for our sins, burial, and resurrection, and put their faith alone, in that alone, for salvation, they become saved. And another biblical word that describes that idea is Justification which means you're declared righteous before the holy and righteous God. 
That's been decided for you as an individual. So when you receive the gospel by faith, that Christ died, was buried, and rose again, you are justified that very moment in God's sight. You are saved from the penalty of sin. And that is a permanent transaction. It's a once and done for transaction. That is what he's basically reminding them of in verse 1 when he says, I make known to you again what I preached to you before. And you received it and you still stand in it, he tells them. He's reminding them that they've already built their whole Christian lives on the idea that Jesus rose from the dead and therefore there must be resurrection from the dead. Otherwise, it's contradictory. The Corinthians, they had trusted Jesus Christ. When Paul came, you can go back to Acts chapter 18 and read of how he came to uh, Corinth and how the church got established over an 18-month ministry and, and kind of grew from there, had its challenges, had its ups and downs and so forth. But they had trusted Jesus Christ. In one sense, they had turned from pagan philosophy and wisdom and idolatrous gods, and they had held on to Jesus Christ and the gospel that comes in him. And in that moment that they, each one of those, them individually trusted that, they became part of the family of God. Their sins were forgiven. They, in that moment, forever possessed eternal life. The Holy Spirit indwelt them. And again, nothing could ever change that. And they were forever saved from the penalty of sin. Which, if you don't know what that is, the penalty of sin is always death. And we'll kind of explore that in in the message a little bit as we go. Because we're sinners, we come into this world spiritually separated from God, so we come into this world spiritually dead. Just think of death equaling separation. When you physically die, your spirit and soul leave your physical body. The spirit and soul separate from your body, and that is physical death. But the Bible also talks about a third thing, which actually is called the second death. And that is when a person bears the guilt of their own sins and they face God in the end and they're judged for their works. And they all are found unrighteous. And they go into the eternal lake of fire. Forever separated from God. Forever separated. That's eternal death. Forever separated from God. And that ultimately is the penalty of sin that is in front of every soul that comes into this world. The gospel rescues you from that. The gospel saves you from that penalty. Again, you're believed that moment you're justified, you're declared righteous in God's sight, you will never face that judgment of the unrighteous without Christ. You will never face that penalty. You will never face what the Bible calls the second death in the lake of fire. So what he reminds them in verse 1 is, you've already believed Jesus rose from the dead because you've already believed the gospel, and that's how you're saved. So if you're throwing this away, you're throwing away the gospel, you're throwing away your salvation. It doesn't make any sense. You know, I was thinking, you know, this week again, uh, as a church family, we've, we've welcomed a new one as the little baby boy Eli Justice was born to the Becker family. And uh, it's always exciting when, you, when a new one is born, right, and it's just... It's just a blessing. That's what the Bible calls it, and that's what we experience. It's a blessing. 
But it's interesting when you think of the idea of being born or birth. Once you're born into this world, you can never be unborn, can you? It's just a statement in history and it never changes. Right? You come born in this world, you never become unborn. You're born and then it's, what does the future hold for you, right? And that's why the Bible uses language like, when you come to trust Christ as your Savior, you are born again. You are now born into God's family, a spiritual birth. And guess what? Once you become born into God's family, you can never become unborn. You will never face any uh, condemnation from God in the sense of, of judgment for sin in that sense. You, that nothing can change that. And you can also never spiritually die. Again, it's a one-time only event, just like being born into this world is. And nothing can ever change the fact that you've been born into this world, and therefore nothing can ever change the fact when you're born again into the family of God. That's basically what Paul's trying to get across to the Corinthians now, is they're challenged on this new doctrine. And just by the way, if you remember in this epistle, a lot of times he's used the phrase, uh, now concerning what you wrote to me, uh, now concerning this issue, now concerning that issue. It's been a repeated phrase because he's been dealing with all kinds of things that they had asked him about. You can go back to chapter 7, you can go back to chapter uh, 12. Chapter 12, he said, now concerning spiritual gifts, and then he spent chapters 12, 13, and 14 dealing with that, right? We've been covering that. But when he comes to the resurrection, nobody's asked about this one. He just says, I'm going to talk to you about it. So obviously he's heard about this, that this is something that some of them are stumbling into and beginning to teach, which could really shipwreck people's faith. As we move into verse 2, the point we're going to make here is that the good news of Christ saves us from the power of sin. Again, verse 2 says, of this gospel he preached, he says, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What he's making the point here is that the gospel, not only does it save you one time for all time from the penalty of sin, but it's still the source of power in your daily life to save you from the power of sin. You can live victoriously over sin as a Christian in this world, in this life, in this body. Victory is there because of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ. The good news of Christ keeps saving us from the power of sin. Interestingly enough, the, the, in the Greek where it's translated, by which also you are saved, that verb is in the present tense. And it denotes a continual idea. Not only did the gospel save you once and for all from the penalty of sin, but it's still saving you day by day as you learn to walk after the Spirit and have victory over the flesh and victory over sin. The Corinthians needed to hear that, right? Because some of their lives were not all that transformed, were they, from the world. They struggled with so many issues, so many sinful tendencies. And I think Paul's kind of using that phraseology to maybe kind of poke at that and say, He may be connecting some of their childish behavior, some of their spiritually immature behavior, was being born from the fact that they were starting to doubt the simple truths of the gospel. And it was having implications in their lives. 
Remember, what all, all, everything we believe has implications. And if you start doubting the gospel, that's going to show up in your daily life. So there's no victory over sin in the Christian's daily life if you move away from the resurrection of Christ, if you move away from the gospel. The gospel, again, is the truth that Jesus Christ died for me, was buried, and rose again the third day. And what Paul is showing here is that continues to change me. It reminds me of God's love for me. It reminds me of his grace toward me. And it calls me to respond in faith to following Jesus Christ in my life according to the grace of God that works in my heart. That's how we live victoriously over sin. So it is the gospel by which you are being saved on a day-to-day basis. Paul goes on in verse 2 and he, he uses this big word, if. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here he introduces a conditional idea. And his point is again that the resurrection of Christ is true. But what he's basically saying, but if you doubt that, if you doubt the resurrection of Christ because you doubt resurrection from the dead, then you are now shutting the power of the gospel off from your life. You are creating a situation in which you will not live victoriously in the Christian life because you're moving away from the truth of who Jesus Christ is. When he says, uh, if you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, he's saying you continue in your daily life to hold on to that message of what Christ has done. You continue to hold on to it. That's where the victory comes from. And when he says, unless you believed in vain, basically what he's saying there is, if you don't believe in resurrection, then you don't believe in Jesus resurrecting. You don't really believe in the gospel. And it is simply empty. It's a nothing. He's saying, if what you're now teaching is true, then what I told you before is is empty. It's nothing. It's no longer a true message. But again, the point in verse 2, it can cut you off from the power of God in your life right now if you move away from the simple truth of the gospel. You know, speaking of putting a a finger in an electrical outlet, (laughs) uh, you know, we understand any kind of appliance, any kind of electronic device we use, we need to plug it in to the source of power, the source of electricity, right? The screen up here on the stage guess what, you know, that's not just on, it's, it's plugged into an outlet and it's getting its power. And what will happen the moment I unplug it? It'll be cut off from the power, it will simply go back to being a black, empty, void screen. Right? That is kind of a good picture of what he's telling the Corinthians here. Not only is it the gospel that saved you from sin's penalty at a once-and-for-all transaction, it's also the gospel that saves you in your day-to-day life from the power of sin. And if you doubt the truth of it, you are unplugging yourself from the power of God in your life. The Corinthians, again, guess what? Your beliefs have implications. What they were believing was bearing fruit in their lives, and they were becoming a very selfish and self-centered people and hurting each other in all kinds of different ways. Because partly they're cutting themselves off from God's truth of the gospel. So, it, excuse me, so the good news of Christ saves you from the penalty of sin. It, sends you, it saves you from the power of sin. 
And I'm going to make a third point based on the chapter in whole, that the good news of Christ saves us from the presence of sin. Saves us from the penalty of sin. Another word for that, as I said, is justification. It saves us from the power of sin in our daily lives. Another word for that is sanctification. That's the theological word, sanctification. You're being set apart for God's use on a day-to-day basis. You're being transformed day-to-day by the Spirit's work in you. That's sanctification. This one, you're saved from the presence of sin. A word we can attach to that is glorification. You will be glorified with the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be resurrected, raised again, to sit with Him in the heavens and be glorified with Him. That's the Christian's destiny and ultimate hope, to be with Christ forever in a resurrected, glorified body with Him. That is being saved from the presence of sin. Again, to to make the case in this chapter, Paul is championing championing the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. Uh, You know, the doctrine of resurrection, that's that's throughout the whole Bible. That once a person dies, they don't stay dead. Their bodies are, are going to be resurrected. All people who have ever lived will be resurrected. Daniel, way back in Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2, the prophet Daniel saw a vision, and one of the things captured in that was this phrase, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus said similar things in his earthly ministry. Paul is going to teach us similar things in this very chapter. And when you put the verses together, you see that God will raise everyone from the dead by virtue of Jesus Christ's resurrection. The issue is, those who have their faith in Christ, they will be raised to everlasting life, to be seated with Him in the heavens and enjoy His kingdom. But those who don't believe in Him, those who remain separated from God when they leave this world, their bodies will come alive again, and they'll be, res- they'll be reunited with their spirit and soul. But, but that resurrection simply takes them before what the Bible calls the great white throne judgment, where the books are open and they're judged by their works and they're cast into the lake of fire. They're cast into the lake of fire, spirit, soul, and body, even resurrected body. And that's why they last there forever. But resurrection is a doctrine that touches everyone. And that's what, again, what Paul's reminding them of in this very chapter. But once you and I, once we're resurrected, or, or you could even say once we leave this world, our body, even, if you, even if you die you know, in this life, you die in the near future, and you're, we lay your body to rest, you go home to be with the Lord, and in that form, your spirit and soul are already out of the presence of sin. But one day your bodies are going to catch up when Jesus comes back and says, Arise, basically, and your bodies will arise and be caught up into the clouds, and you'll be reunited with a resurrected body. We call that the rapture. Some may live to that day and never face physical death on this earth. That's a possibility. But we're given our resurrected bodies, and we go to heaven, spirit, soul, and body. Sin is no longer able to touch us. The problems of sin and death and pain and sorrow will not touch us. We will be delivered from the very presence of sin and all that that brings. And that's a future thing that we're still moving toward. That glorification, that's the Christian's destiny. And that is too 
built into the gospel. Just like Jesus died to sin, you're dead to sin. Just like Jesus was buried, your sins have been taken away from you. Just like Jesus rose from the dead, you'll rise from the dead and be with him forever. That is what God is doing. Have you ever owned a problem home? You ever have a house and it's just one thing after another? <laughs> maybe it's the electrical, maybe it's the plumbing, maybe you buy a house and find out later there's structural problems. Maybe you've had one of those houses built in the 50s where the block walls start coming in on you and cracking and you've got to put steel reinforcements in it. And we've probably all had homes where it, uh, well any home always is more than you think and costs more than you think, is more work than you think. Seems like that's just a principle of life. But the thing about a problem home is, if you get to the point and you don't want to be there anymore, you can do what? You can sell that home. You can sell it. Now, we'll say, you know, good Christian, when you sell your home, you fully disclose all the issues. <laughs> like, yeah, there's a crack in the foundation. We think there's some structural, but, but, it, but if you buy it, it's yours. You, know, you disclose it. You sell that house. You sign it. That ain't your problem no more, is it? <laughs> that ain't your problem home anymore. You're done with it. You've left it behind. You've moved on. You've bought your dream home. And then you find it's a problem home too. No, I'm just kidding. But, but you move on. You can, you can leave a problem home behind. You can sell it. You can, and then, okay, person buys it with eyes wide open. They know what they're in for. Maybe that's fine for them, but you're out of here. Well, that's kind of like what's going to happen at the resurrection. We're going to leave this problem body behind, right? This problem tent, you know, we're leaving it behind. And it's raised in, in a new way that nothing can touch. It'll never have a problem. Again, no pain, no sin, no sorrow, no death, none of that. Just like when you sell a home, it's in the past now, it's not your problem anymore, it can't touch you anymore. Basically speaking, it's kind of like that in the resurrection. Sin no longer can touch us. We're saved from the presence of that in our lives, and we get to move on with the Lord, dwelling with Him in glory forever. Again, this is what the gospel does for the Christian. Jesus' resurrection is the foundation of our salvation. In, in the past, when we are saved from the penalty of sin, in the presence, as we're being saved from the power of sin, and in the future, as we're even saved from the presence of sin when we go home to be with him and our bodies are resurrected. If the Corinthians were going to begin to throw away the resurrection from the dead, they were in jeopardy of throwing away the very gospel. Beliefs have implications. As he goes on, he gives us the details of what the gospel incorporate, and he keeps repeating this phrase, he does it a couple of times, that according to the scriptures. He's drawing emphasis upon what the Bible teaches to show also if they throw this away, you're actually throwing away the scriptures too because you're saying they're not true anymore. So we're on very precarious ground when we move away from the truth of what Christ has done. Christ's resurrection was predicted in the scriptures in verses 3 and 4. Again, verse 3 says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. The first point we'll make here, it comes out in Paul's choice of words when he says, first. In the Greek, it's the idea of first or foremost. He delivered to them, first of all. When he says, first of all, he means this is of first importance. He's like, when I came to Corinth, I told you the most important thing first. Jesus died for your sins. 
He didn't get in some big theological argument. He didn't come there to impress them with knowledge. He went right to the simplicity that is in Christ, right to the gospel that Jesus died for sins. Because that's the most important thing we can ever share with anybody, right? That Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. That's what saves people. That's what puts people in the family of God so then they can be transformed. Sometimes as Christians, we want to see people change. We look out in the world, we say, we want to see change out there. We want to see change in that country, change in this community. What's the most important thing you can say? Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. Because without that truth, there will be no lasting change or transformation. It's just that simple. That's why he didn't waste time trying to reform people and their behavior. He went right to their heart with the gospel. And this is where where it all begins or where a person rejects it all. The good news of Christ is of first importance. Paul says he received it. And that's an important phrase too. The the power of the gospel was confirmed to Paul. Paul received his message from the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ. It all started on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Paul was going to, his point, his purpose was to put Jewish Christians into jail or maybe have them put to death. That he, he had made that his life's work. At that point in his life. And as he's going, Jesus appeared to him in a light brighter than the sun, knocked him on the ground. He said, why do you kick against the goads? What are you, why do you persecute me? And Paul's life changed on that day. And that day he knew that Jesus had died, had been buried, and had risen again because he saw the risen Lord, the ascended Lord. He knew in that day. That Christ was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. He was all he ever claimed to be. And Paul humbled himself in that truth. From that moment on, you see a man be transformed from the chief of sinners, self-proclaimed, leading persecution against Christ, to, to perhaps the most greatest proclaimer of Jesus Christ the world has ever seen. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power of the gospel. So he says, and I received it. Which means that in his revelations he got from Jesus Christ, he also received this. He used the same wording back in uh, chapter 11 when he said he received from the Lord what we call communion, the Lord's Supper. He received about the body and the the blood, the bread and the, 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 the cup, if you will. He received that. It was stuff God gave him to give to us, the church, today. And the resurrection, the gospel... Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He said, I received that from the Lord. Now, other people knew about that. Peter would have known. The other 12 known. But Paul's saying, I got it right from the risen Lord. Turn with me for a moment to Galatians chapter 1. And let's just read a passage that kind of goes along with this. Galatians chapter 1. We'll just take a brief field trip over there for a minute. It's only a couple books over. I've learned over the years that I can't talk and turn Bible pages at the same time. So if I'm telling you where to turn, I'm like up here fumbling like, like, where am I in Revelation? How do I get back to Galatia? I can't do two things at once apparently. Galatians 1, let's just read from verse 11 to just see how things worked for Paul and just so we can understand this. Uh, Beginning with verse 11, he says, 
But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I'll stop there for time's sake. But basically, Paul is explaining in Galatians that the things that he taught and preached actually came to him directly from the risen, ascended, glorified Jesus Christ. He was an apostle of God sent to the world, to Gentiles, Jews, the kings of men, to turn them from darkness to light. That was his commission, armed with what he called the gospel of the grace of God, which included the specific truths about Jesus Christ dying, being buried, and rising again the third day. It's important. See, one of the things that Paul's doing in this portion of Corinthians is he's, in one sense, still defending himself as an apostle. And that's what he's doing in Galatians too, by the way. You know, you could imagine Paul, he, he met the Lord later. The 12 apostles already existed in Jerusalem. That was all going strong when Paul showed up. I mean, there was a persecution he helped to lead, but, but, but there was a lot of people involved in that. And so you could understand the prestige of the 12 apostles was widely known, that they were widely known and respected as apostles. And then this new guy shows up, and he says, I saw the risen Lord. You're like, really? <laughs> well, the, the, how else did he prove it? Well, he could uh, heal people. He could speak in tongues. He rose uh, at least one person from the dead, Eutychus, we think. Anyway, he did things that only an apostle could do, and God attested to his ministry through those signs and miracles and wonders to show that, no, Paul indeed is an apostle of God. But, you know, it took time even for the other 12 to really come along and acknowledge that. And, you know, when he first came to town after he was saved, they didn't want anything to do with him. They were hiding from him, basically. They didn't let him come in. And Barnabas came along and gave him an audience. And they got to know him and to see that this change was real, that his, his transformation was real. And therefore, it showed that what he was preaching was true. And then all the signs and miracles went along with it. But he's adamant that he received it from the Lord. You remember earlier in 1 Corinthians, one of the issues of the church was, they were like, well, some of us are following Cephas. Some of us are following Apollos. Some of us are following Christ. Some of us are following Paul. And he says, is Christ divided? He's defending himself as an apostle because what he taught and preached to them was the very words of God for them in their lives. And if they were going to dismiss him, they were dismissing the truth, including resurrection from the dead. If you, if you can defend, you know, they probably were defending the idea that we don't need resurrection from the dead, but only if they could excuse Paul from the conversation and dismiss his teachings and say, well, he's not really, I mean, you know, he's, a, he's, a, he's like, like a lower guy, you know, he's not a primary apostle, he's not a chief apostle, 
But no, he actually is, and he's adamant that he received it from the Lord. And because he received it, it's binding for today. The gospel of salvation that saved the Corinthians is just as much in effect today as part of God's revelation for the church, the revelation of the mystery, the gospel of the grace of God. It's just as binding today as it was in the first century. And he's making that point when he says, I received it as an apostle. It's truth for you. And he says it's of first importance. It was where he always started because it was how people get saved. You know, sometimes we might hear the question or ask it to somebody else of, uh, you know, what, what would you do in life if you only had like one week to live? What would you do? What would you do different that week that you normally don't do every week of your life? How would that change your routine? What would you do different if you only had one more week and you knew that for a fact? What would you do with it? And you might think of a lot of things. It's probably, it's probably a very multifaceted question. You know, I would think, well, I'm going to spend my time with my family and my loved ones and I'm going to hold them and tell them I love them and I'm going to do that. I'm going to, that's going to be part of it. But a question like that really goes to the heart and questions our priorities in life, doesn't it? And it makes us ask, what do we hold as most important? What do we hold as first importance, as the most foremost things in our lives? If we knew our time was so extremely limited, that would come out very quickly. What we hold to be the highest values and priorities. And I think of that in terms of like, what about all the people I know that I don't believe are saved. What would, I, what would I do with my last week in regards to them? What would maybe I say to those family members? Right? I bet it would stir a new sense of urgency in my life that I would want them to know Jesus died for them, was buried and rose again the third day. As Paul says again, it's of first importance. It probably would bring that out even more. It just helps reorient our focus. Why are we here in the first place? I'm here as an ambassador of Jesus Christ to make his gospel known. And the greatest thing I can do for anybody is to share that message in love and to say, did you know Jesus died for you? Because God loves you so much. And he was buried and God rose him from the grave the third day to show that he was well pleased with that sacrifice, that it accepted his righteous demands. It's of the first most importance As we go on here, what is Paul basically saying? Well, the good news of Christ includes the death of Christ for sins. Simple in verse 3, right? Christ died for your sins, according to the Scriptures. This is part of the gospel message, what we call the gospel of salvation. It's as simple as what Paul's saying here in verses 3 and 4. Jesus died for you, for your sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. What we understand is that Christ had to die for sins for any salvation to have ever been possible, for any redemption to be possible, for anyone to have eternal life. Revelation calls Jesus the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. It was always the plan of God for Christ to come into the world to save sinners. There's no other way. He was the perfect sacrifice 
Because he was the holy and righteous God incarnate as a man. Both God and man, 100% each. Only he could be a sacrifice that could wash away every sin as the God-man. He's the only one that was even possible for this to be the case. We understand from the Bible that sin has always been our problem. From Eden onward. From the time that they partook of the forbidden fruit to now. Sin separates us from God. It's always been our problem. And everything that the Bible has been talking about from Genesis on, it was foreshadowing, it was predicting, it was prophesying that the Messiah would come into the world, that God would come into flesh and save us from our greatest foe, sin. It's the only way. You go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, and there was a promise given, the very first promise about one to come. As God talked about the seed of the woman that would come and bruise the head of the serpent. That was foreshadowing Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, the only one who can defeat Satan in sin and death. You can go back and study Israel's history. You see all the the sacrifices, all the blood spilt of lambs and bulls and goats. It was all about atonement. God was showing a principle. Life is in the blood. Only blood can cover sin because that merits death. The only way to get out of that death is a substitutionary death. Uh, Somebody else's blood has to be shed. And the blood ran from the tabernacle, from the temple, right? All through Israel's history. But it was all pointing to something greater. The once and for all sacrifice. When Jesus would come and shed his blood. And it wouldn't just cover sins temporarily. It would wash them away like a dam bursting. And take them all out. That's the power of his blood. So the scriptures had talked about this and predicted this and foreshadowed this. Since Eden. That one was coming that could save humanity. To say that there's no resurrection from the dead is to say Christ did not raise from the dead, which is to say the scriptures are not true. And that's just awful, right? That's not good. But that's where these people were hidden. Jesus' death was prophesied in passages like Psalm 22. Let me just read a couple of verses out of Psalm 22. Psalm 22, David wrote a thousand years before Christ came into the world, or more perhaps. Psalm 22, 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and I'm not silent. You know what's interesting? Psalm 22.1, Jesus said it on the cross, didn't he? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced separation from God for the only time in history. From the Father and the Son, there was a separation on the cross. For those six hours, he's on the cross apparently, or at least the last three hours of darkness. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he felt that, he tasted that for every one of us. So we never would have to face that again. 
His death was predicted. Isaiah 53, if you go read that whole chapter, it's about the suffering servant of God. And it talks about how his, you know, bruised for our transgressions and so forth. The point is, again, the scriptures always predicted that that the Christ would come and die for sin. That's not just a Pauline truth. That is a heart of God truth for all dispensations. And it come out in the prophets. That's why he says it's according to the scriptures. It's part of Paul's message. It's incorporated in because there is no foundation but Jesus Christ. And it's death, burial, and resurrection. It brings redemption to all men of all dispensations and times. So again, if you deny that, we deny the very scriptures. J. Gresham Mason wrote, Christ died, that is history. Christ died for our sins, that is doctrine. Without these two elements joined in an absolutely indis- <laughs> indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. Jesus died, that's historical fact. He died for our sins, that's spiritual fact. And without those two truths, what we believe is empty. It's in vain, as Paul said in verse 2. He goes on in verse 4, and he targets now the burial and resurrection. The good news of Christ includes the burial and resurrection of Christ. It's this threefold idea that Paul gives right here in these two verses. Why does he make a big deal about burial? Because it shows that Jesus was really dead. He didn't swoon, as some have wondered. He didn't just pass out from blood loss and exhaustion. No, he was died. And they began to prepare the body like they would prepare any dead body. And they put him in a tomb and they sealed him there. Right? He was dead. Period. The Romans knew it. The Jews knew it. The disciples knew it. He was dead. That's what the entombment shows. That's what the burial proves. He died. So our sins could literally be taken away. Isaiah 53.9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. No, his burial shows that he really did die, which makes his death for sins valid, that he really did die for it. And it pictures him, just like you put away the dead body in any burial rites or practices, it shows Jesus had, was putting away our sins. Let me go to Romans chapter 6 for a moment and just show you how Paul applies the death, burial, and resurrection not only to salvation but to the Christian's daily life. Romans chapter 6. Notice the three elements of the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection, right here in a sanctified Christian walk, victorious over sin. Romans 6, 3 through 7. Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? And this is talking about spiritual baptism. The Holy Spirit places you into Jesus Christ the moment of your salvation, which also places you into his death. In other words, God sees you as having died to sin too. Therefore, verse 4, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. 
knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should be no longer slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. That passage says, you died with him, you were buried with him, and now because of that, you can walk in a new resurrection life. And you can look forward to your actual bodily resurrection. But for you, as a Christian, it's all done. It's all done. What, what's left, what remains is believe it and act on it because it's done in Jesus Christ. Again, saved from the penalty of sin, saved from the power of sin, waiting to be saved from the presence of sin. The burial is a part of that. It pictures how our sins are removed and it pictures that we too have died with Christ and that's a permanent transaction and, and just as much now we can walk in newness of life. We go on to the resurrection as he ends with that. And again, these are according to the scriptures. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, this is going to be what we talk about throughout this chapter and how it applies to us. And again, we're coming up on Easter only two months away, Resurrection Sunday, where we really focus on this truth. But we get to spend time on it right now. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ do? One thing it does is it proves that God accepted his death for us. God accepted it. That's the idea of a word called propitiation. If you go back to Romans 3.25, you read this word propitiation. It means that God was satisfied with Christ's sacrifice. It actually is a word that means the same thing as what used to be on the Ark of the Covenant in, within the temple in Jerusalem. There was this golden ark. Remember, Moses made it with the children of Israel, and there was two cherubim on top. And, in the, and before the cherubim, that's where the presence of God would, would dwell, and the glory of the Lord would emanate from the temple from that spot. And that was called the mercy seat. And that's the same word in the Greek that means propitiation. That's where they satisfied God with the shedding of blood. Paul says Jesus has done that forever and for everyone. It is satisfied. It has appeased God. He is satisfied with it. It meets his requirements. It's over. That's what propitiation shows. That's what the resurrection of Christ proves. It is finished. Jesus said it on the cross. The resurrection was God's stamp upon it. The resurrection also proves that Jesus is all he claimed to be. He is the Son of God, as Paul captures that in Romans 1.4, he says of Jesus Christ, he says, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. It proves he is God. And also the resurrection too was prophesied, as Paul's alluding to here with the idea of according to the scriptures. The, the death was prophesied, the burial was prophesied, the resurrection was prophesied. Psalm 16, 10 and 11 says of the Christ, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That passage is one that speaks to Jesus Christ in his burial and his death, you know, and his soul went to Sheol. But God didn't leave him there. He came back from the dead. His body was resurrected. And his spirit and soul were reunited with his resurrected body. That too, that idea was captured in the prophets and the scriptures. So again, if they were going to throw resurrection of the dead overboard, 
What they were not understanding is they were throwing everything overboard. They're throwing it all away. It's so vital and central. When my family visits uh, my parents in southern Indiana, uh, they kind of live on like a four-acre hobby farm sort of a property. And uh, one of the things we do sometimes is go up by this little pond that's been constructed up in the field, in the pasture, the old pasture. And uh, sometimes you go up to the pond and, uh, you know, you might be able to catch a little frog. You might see a turtle. So sometimes when you're, you know, you're going to go up to maybe see if you can catch a frog or something, you know, all the frog has to do is jump in the water. You know why? Because it's really muddy water. <laughs> this pond, you know, the soil there is real, a lot of clay, and it's just, you never can see anything past the surface. Even in this much water, all you see is mud. And so if the frog jumps in there, it's game over. You're getting that frog. He's gone. He's invisible. The only way you see a turtle is if like a little head pops up, that muddy surface, and then drops back down again. The mud clouds everything. You can't see anything in that water. Well, that's how it is when people who think they're talking about the gospel begin to tack things onto it and say, no, it's what you can do. It's how much you give. It's the church you go to. It's when you were baptized. How you were baptized? Were you confirmed? Were you any of these things? And all these things get attached, all these trappings and all this stuff. And you know what that does? It just muddies the water. And nobody can see clearly anymore. But what Paul shows us in this passage again is the gospel of Jesus Christ is crystal clear. He died for your sins, was buried, and rose again the third day. And all you need to do is put your faith in him that he did that for you. And you will become justified in that very moment. And you will await the resurrection along with the rest of us. Again, everything we believe has implications. And if we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it should also come out in our lives. Father, we thank you for our time in these few verses this morning and how words written 2,000 years ago speak to our heart now and stir our hearts for you. Lord, we pray we take these truths and we continue to see how important it is to stand for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make that of first importance in our life, to make it known to others, Lord. And even as mature Christians sometimes, we may get, be, begin to forget the importance of these things, and that will show up in our Christian life. So Lord, help us to continue to be faithful, keep us faithful to you, and for the truth of your word, and, and as ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.